You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. My name's Scott. I'm a pastoral resident here at Redeeming Grace Church. Really glad you're here. Uh, If you've been joining us for the past few weeks, actually since Easter, we kicked off a series on Easter on the book of Job. And uh, this book has, I mean, the whole whole thing is laced through with this theme of of the problem of evil. How can we explain evil, suffering, terrible things in a world that Christians claim is actually governed and created by a good God? And it gets really personal. Job himself is afflicted with this. We're not talking about kind of uh, theoretical or hypothetical examples, but we have in front of us uh, the real true story of a man named Job who's enduring some pretty incredible suffering. And so I just wanted to point that out to anybody who's joining us, that we're, we're hopping, you're kind of catching us in the middle of the book, actually towards the, the climax of the book as a, as a narrative. I also, for all of us who've been here through most of the series, uh, just want to remind you that though Job's sufferings are terrible, I mean, like really severe, so he loses all of his kids, they're killed, his flocks, his servants are destroyed, he himself is afflicted with like terrible skin disease. Don't just, you know, read through and listen through our preaching on Job with the perspective of that this is for like major, major trials like that, right? We can also be applying our own, our own, you know, small sufferings. It could be a nasty gram email you got from a customer. It could be like bouncing a two-month-old to sleep at 2 a.m. in the middle of the night and they just won't go to sleep. So our trials and sufferings could be huge like Job's. They could also be quite small, things that we're encountering every day. And Job, the wisdom of Job applies both just as equally to those as to the things that are are pretty significant. So I'm going to pray for our time together and then we're going to be jumping into Job chapter 32 through 37. It'd be really helpful for you to have a Bible in front of you. So we're just going to be moving through the texts uh, as as it flows today. So whether that's on your phone, there's lots of Bibles around you. Uh, tucked under the chairs and whatnot, then we'd like you to have a Bible so that you can, you can follow along in the text and see these truths for yourselves. Please bow our heads and pray for me and with me. <laughs> Father, please help us now to give our full attention to the preaching of the word. You're speaking to us now. These are the very words of God. You're speaking to us as if you were to thunder out of the thunderstorm just as you spoke to Job. It's no different. So help us to take that with a, with a seriousness and a sweetness that you have condescended to reveal yourself to us in your scriptures. Please help us to pay attention, to be active in listening, to be applying these truths to our specific lives, and please help me to communicate these truths with all the right uh, accuracy and analysis and tone that is mirrored in the text. Guard me from error, and may we all be built up one another into the temple of the Lord through this preaching today. Amen. So we're jumping into Job chapter 32. As you get there, we're going to be introduced today to a guy named Elihu. All right, and he just kind of comes out of nowhere. He is not mentioned earlier in the book. If you recall, once Job received his afflictions, both the things that happened to his family and to his household, as well as to him personally, three friends showed up, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they came from afar. These were his friends that he had encountered, uh, probably significant men in their own right. 
who came to comfort him. And then as soon as Job started speaking, they thought they needed to weigh in and correct his theology. No mention is made of this guy named Elihu that we're going to encounter. All right? He just kind of comes up, and it's actually a little comical. He kind of uh, chirps up, and he, you're going to see he's like, uh, excuse me, you've all had your turn. Uh, I'd like to go now. And so where does this guy come from? We're not, we're not entirely sure. But I just want to say up front that there are some, uh, you read half a dozen commentaries, and there's a lot of debate about who is this guy. Is he just another one of Job's friends? Who's going to say similar stuff, bring up same themes? He's going to accuse Job just like his friends did. And he doesn't really move the ball forward at all. He doesn't add to the argument. He just is another windbag, so to speak, kind of like Job's friends, and a, wor- and a worthless comforter. So I don't think that is at all the way to read Elihu. And we're gonna, hopefully I'm going to point that out to you. But one, hopefully we can just, as we think about the pe- previous weeks, the previous chapters we've moved through, it wouldn't make any sense to inject that kind of figure here in the middle of the story. For Job's three friends to go through three cycles of speeches that like don't advance the argument at all, they don't actually get to the root of the matter, they don't actually comfort Job, and Job ends by holding fast to his integrity, being like, you guys, I, sh- I told you, I didn't do anything wrong to deserve this. And they have this beautiful pinnacle uh, text, chapter 28, on where can wisdom be found. We talked about mining, the homestake mine last week, how man can go to great lengths to achieve that was, find that which is valuable, but he can't find wisdom. And then to just like throw another random fourth friend in there who's going to say the same stuff. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And hopefully as, I sh- as we move through the text, I'll be able to point out exactly how Elihu is going to accuse Job, but in a wildly different way than his friends have. And so I think Job is not just another worthless friend. I think he really is almost this prophetic character who's coming to prepare Job to meet God, who will, who will finally show up in chapter 38. We'll do that next week. And so as we listen to this, again, it's going to sound similar to Job's friends, but I'll hopefully be able to point out some of the stark differences that show actually Elihu is taking a much different approach, and his criticisms, his accusations against Job are actually pretty different from his friends. So look at chapter 32 with me here. This is after the three cycles of speeches we move through between Job and his friends going back and forth. It says in verse 1, these three men, that's his friends, ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. And he burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. So Elihu is younger. He's respecting his elders. He let, he's letting them weigh in on this subject and deferring to their, their wisdom that they ought to have from a longer life and experience. But he's recognizing they, they were not able to provide any answers for Job or point out where he had wronged. So I am going to step forward and actually weigh in on this thing. He's angry at Job's friends because they failed to condemn uh, Job of his sin. They pointed out all sorts of other sins that Job supposedly had committed, but we know that he didn't. His friends accused Job of like sending away widows hungry and breaking the arm of the fatherless, like really terrible things, really terrible things. And so Elihu's like, you guys, none of that was true at all, but there are some things we need to point out in Job. But he's also angry at Job because Job has spent this whole time justifying himself 
rather than the ways of God. So if you think back to the chapters where Job answers back, most of his responses are, again, they're, they're grounded in this experience of tremendous suffering that he's going through. But he's constantly saying, God, it feels like you've made me your enemy. I know I haven't done anything wrong. I don't deserve this. This doesn't make any sense. What on earth could you be doing? You must not care. You must be unjust. Or you're just silent. You're refusing to answer me. And so that is the, the, the target of Elihu's speeches here we're going to see. Elihu is not going to accuse Job of sinning like his friends did. He's not going to say, before you suffered, Job, you committed this sin, and that's why you're suffering now. He's not going to do that. He's going to quote, sometimes word for word, things Job has said in his suffering and say, that was wrong of you to say that. So Elihu's his major point here through his, across his four or five speeches is not, Job, you sinned, therefore you're suffering. It's Job, yes, you've been suffering, but in your suffering, you have sinned with your words. And we're going to see that now. So look at verse 6. This is kind of like Elihu's apology, where again, he's going to be really long-winded and saying like, excuse me, I know I'm young. If you just hear me out, uh, it's kind of comical. Verse 6, Elihu, the son of Barachel the Buzai, answered and said, I am young in years and you are aged. Therefore, I am timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let day speak and may, many years teach wisdom. So he deferred to the elders that were there and their wisdom. But at the end of the day, it is the spirit in man the breath of the Almighty that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged to understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. And he's right. There's a sense in which we should expect our elders to be wiser than us. But I know old people who are absolute fools. All right, people in my own family who, though they should be wise because of their years, are actually living foolishly. And so at the end of the day, it's the fear of the Lord that brings wisdom, and it is the Spirit that gives wisdom not just age and experience. Verse 11, Behold, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention, and behold, there was none among you who refuted Job, that's right, or who answered his words. Beware lest you say, We have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a man. He has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. So that's his criticism against Job's friends. You guys are all wrong. Nothing you said was really truly wise. They are dismayed, then answer no more. They have not a word to say. And shall I wait because they do not speak? Because they stand there and answer no more? I will also will answer with my share. I also will declare my opinion, for I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person. For I did not know how to flatter, or else my maker would soon take me away. Elihu here is using language that's actually parallel with language we hear Jeremiah using. In Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9, I'm just going to read it to you here. Don't need to look it up. But the language of like, my wine is, my, my belly is like wine that's ready to burst, right? It's fermenting, it's producing gases and things like that. They don't have a way to escape, it's going to explode. It's almost as if he has a word from God to give to Job. And he has been silent, he's been patient, but he's on a mission to, to represent God rightly, and he's got to get it out. Listen to how Jeremiah relates the same experience in chapter 20, verse 9. He says, Jeremiah says, If I say, I will not mention him, that's God, or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. 
and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. So it's a sense that like the prophets had this message, and they're like, they had to declare the word of the Lord to the people that they were sent. They couldn't keep it in, and Elihu is feeling something very similar. Now we're going to get into his first speech, okay? And, and your, your own Bible does a pretty good job here with the chapter breaks. So chapter 33, 34, 35, 36, and 37 each contain kind of independent speeches. And in each speech, Elihu is going to address an objection that we've heard Job say. should have the overview here. The first speech, he's going to address this fact that God is not silent, Job. Job has accused God of like refusing to meet with him, refusing to answer for what's going on, and now Elihu's going to prove that's not true. In chapter 34, uh, Job has accused God of actually being unjust, that God doesn't follow his principles of justice, and Elihu's going to prove, nope, that's not the case. In the third speech, he's going to defend that God is not uncaring, though you might think that, Job, because of your suffering. And then in the fourth and really the fifth speech, which is in chapter 37, he's going to show that God is not powerless to stop what's going on or to, or to right the wrongs of the world. So we're going to see that over and over. This is going to sit up here as we move through each speech, and, um, and we'll just go through it bit by bit. That's why you need the scriptures in front of you, all right, because we're going to go through each speech in order here. I don't think, I think they kind of preach themselves to some extent, so I'm not going to go that deep except in areas where it seems like maybe needs some more explanation. So I just want you to see these truths for yourself. And again, think about your own response to suffering in your life as we work through these speeches here. Where can you uh, sympathize, not sympathize, or where can you connect with Job? Like, oh yeah, I've spoken like that before. I have questioned God like that before. And think through where you personally need to be corrected in your own theology of, of questioning God in his ways. Okay, jump into the first speech with me now, chapter 33. This one is going to have some, a really important theme. We'll actually spend most of our time on the theme in chapter 33, but when it comes up again in chapter 36. All right, so if we end chapter, <laughs> the first speech and you're like, wait, that was a huge truth. I can't believe you're just moving on. Don't worry, we're going to come back to it in verse 36. Look at verses 1 to 7 with me, chapter 33, verses 1 to 7. So now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth and tongue and my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart, and what my lips know, they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I, too, was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. I think this, key, this text is really key in kind of capturing the tone that Elihu has here. He's going to have some very serious objections to what Job has said. But what did he just say in verses 1 to 7? It's like, Job, I'm on your team. I am towards God as you are. Get ready to defend yourself, examine yourself as I make these speeches. Test what I'm saying here. You don't need to be afraid. I'm not going to like scathingly rebuke you and criticize you and even insult you like your friends did. Okay, so I think Elihu is in Job's corner, but in a way that he's actually going to turn Job in the right direction. Keep reading. Verses 8 to 12, he's going to point out Job has claimed to be sinless, and that's not the case. Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure, without transgression. I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasion against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man." So this is an example of where Elihu's approach is far different from his friend, the other friends. 
The friends accused Job of sinning in certain ways before the suffering came in chapter 1. Here, Elihu is quoting Job word for word, saying, you have said this in your suffering, and you are not right. You are not right to say that. All right? We're going to explore this a little further. Job has said, there in verse, uh, I think it's, yep, 10, 11, he finds occasion, God finds occasion against me. He counts me as his enemy. That's what Job has accused God of. God has made me his enemy for no reason. Right? And he's put my feet in the stocks and he watches all my paths. Like everywhere I turn, God is out to get me. Job has accused God of that. And here Elihu is saying, nope, that's not quite true. There's actually purposes in God's suffering. God does speak to us through our suffering. And he's going to use two examples. One of dreams and one of being afflicted. Look now at verse 13. This is Elihu. Now, he's not quoting Job anymore. He's speaking directly to Job. Why do you contend against him, against God, saying, he will answer none of man's words? Job has said this. Job has said, God doesn't answer. And Elihu's saying, no, that's not quite right. For God speaks in one way, and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. So there's, again, evidence that this is a really, really, really old book of the Bible, maybe the oldest, all right? And so it could be that in Job's day, there was no scriptures written so that God spoke primarily through dreams. And we actually see this in the book of Genesis, that God comes to people in dreams very, very frequently. So he's saying God does speak through dreams, to terrify people of their sin, not just so they'll go, ah, this is terrible, I'm going to get crushed. But look at verse, oh, just lost it. Look at verse 18. Why does God do that? To keep back his soul, whoever's getting this gene, from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. So God communicates through dreams, and now today we would say through the word, to convict people of their sin, not so they'll just wallow in it or even harden themselves and become even more evil, but so they'd actually repent. He does this in another way. Look now at verse 19. Here's the second way God speaks according to Elihu. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones. He's going to use imagery of like physically suffering like Job is right now, but I think we could pull in all kinds of trials and sufferings and pain. All right, God speaks through pain. Verse 20, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen and his bones were not seen sticking out. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of a thousand, to declare a man what is right for him and he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit and my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. There is a whole bunch of answers to why in suffering in this paragraph. Why does God bring physical pain and suffering on people? It's not just because of this retribution principle that his friends have brought up. 
oh, you sinned, so you're going to get a bad thing. You did good, you're going to get a good thing. That's karma. That's like Eastern religions. That's not Christianity. Job is saying, no, actually, God uses pain and suffering to cause a man to repent. He says, verse 27, I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. So that when this person that he's talking about, as an example, repents and turns from his wicked ways, he's actually not given what he deserves. He's given grace. He's given forgiveness. He's restored. And then it ends saying this again. This is not just in the little things, but actually to redeem someone's life from the pit, from going down into the underworld, from being destroyed and eternally separated from God. That's what he says in verse 30. Why does God do these kinds of things? To bring back his soul from the pit. This is maybe not always the case. This is not always what's going on necessarily with suffering. We've seen other reasons for suffering. And so we shouldn't just automatically assume, oh, something bad happened to me. I am experiencing a trial. I'm suffering in some way. Therefore, God is trying to get me to repent of some kind of sin. So don't, don't blanket this across all of your suffering. All Elihu is saying is that in some cases, God afflicts people, actually people he loves, to turn them back from their sin. So we can't rule it out, but it is a possibility. So Job, you're wrong. God has not been silent. God has not refused to answer. God may actually have something to teach you here in the midst of your suffering. We're going to move on to the second speech, but this theme is going to come back up in the last speech, and we'll really rest on that there, because that's a big truth to think through, to think about the fact that in your suffering, maybe the suffering you've gone through in the past, maybe very recently, or suffering you're about to head into, you don't even know what's coming down the tracks, that God could be using that suffering to actually purify you and make you holy and turn you back to him. And that's a hard truth to wrestle with, so we're going to wrestle with it some more. Turn now to verse 34. Here, the central theme and concern of Elihu is to prove that God really is just. He is not capricious. He's not evil. He really does conform to his own standards of justice. In verses 1 to 9, he says, Job, hear my words, you wise men, and give ear to me, you who know, for the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Let us choose what's right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, again, his friends didn't do this, but this is what Elihu's doing. Elihu's about to quote something Job said. I am in the right, and God has taken away my right. That's Job 27, verse 2. So while the friends accused Job of sinning in the past that brought about the suffering, Elihu is saying, no, that's not what happened, but in your suffering, you have sinned. You have accused God of taking away your rights. That would be unjust. God has, you were in the right, and God has put you out of right, so to speak, unjustly. That's a claim Job made. And Elihu says, no, that's not correct, Job. Verse 6, in spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. Those are things Job said. Verse 7, what man is like Job who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in company with evildoers and walks with wicked men? For he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. Okay. Uh, Eliphaz accused Job of drinking up injustice like water. That's not the case. Job has not sinned with his actions, but he has drank up scoffing like water. Elihu is correct in that. That Job has scoffed towards God or said things that were not true or accused God falsely. And so now he's going to answer him. First of all, he's going to point to the fact that God is the creator that in a sense almost proves that he can't be unjust. 
Look at verse 10. Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of man, he will repay him. And according to his ways, he will make it befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave him charge over the earth? And who laid on him the whole world? If I should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to the dust. He's basically saying, Elihu, you're wrong. God does repay men according to their deeds. It's just not instantaneously, like his friends said. And look at God, the creator of the universe. Who delegated to him its rule and authority? Who, like, created the world and then handed it off to God and said, okay, now you're in charge of governing it. Don't screw it up. Nobody. This is God's world. He is the creator. And then he ends in verse 14 saying, God could withdraw his life-giving breath from all creation and watch all living things perish, and that would be fine because he's the creator. He would be just in doing that. There's no problem with God doing that. Psalm 104 speaks similarly. So Job or Elihu is pointed to God's status as creator to defend him's justice, and now he's going to go through some specifics. Specifics. In verses 16 to 37. In verses 18 and 19, he's going to prove that God judges without favorites. He is just. He doesn't have any favorites when he judges. In verse 20, he says he judges with, cert- with certainty. He knows exactly, the, he knows the case. He doesn't need to go and question people and bring witnesses and pull up evidence and do DNA tests. No, like God knows who's in the right and who's in the wrong. In verses 21 to 25, He's going to say, God does not judge without ignorance. God knows all things. We read about this in, uh, I think, 2 Peter chapter 3 last week, that all things will be laid bare and naked before God, and he will have no trouble discerning right from wrong. In verses 26 to 28, it says he judges without secrecy. It's not like some secret court where God brings the, brings the criminal in and brings the person in and decides whether they're, they're right or wrong and then sends them off and then doesn't release the results. No, like there will be a public trial for all who have wronged God and all who have wronged others. We see things like that in the book of Revelation. There will be a great judgment that our own deeds will have to give an answer before God and before others that this won't be something done in secret, but publicly God will prove his justice at the end of days. And then here's the key. This is another key difference between Elihu and his friends. Verses 29 and 30. Again, we're still in chapter 34 here. Verse 29, when he, that's God, is quiet, who can condemn. So he's acknowledging God doesn't always answer back right away with this retribution principle. When he's quiet, when he's not executing justice right when you think he needs to, who can condemn? When he hides his face, who can behold him, whether it be a nation or a man, that a godless man should not reign, that he should not ensnare the people. For has anyone said to God, I have borne punishment, I will not offend anymore. Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do it no more." Will he then make repayment to suit you because you reject it? For you must choose and not I. Therefore declare what you know. Men of understanding will say to me, and the wise man who hears me will say, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without insight. Would that Job were tried to the end because his answer is like wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hand among us and multiplies his words against God. That's the sin Elihu is accusing Job of, that he said false things about God, that God doesn't really care. God's not going to pay back evil with justice. And that's not true. 
So he's saying, Job, you need to repent and ask God to teach you wisdom. If you don't, can you expect God to restore you if you remain in the state of folly? And then in verses 34 to 37, he's saying, Job, this trial is going to go on until we get to the bottom of it. A trial must go on because you answer like wicked men. You aren't a wicked man, but you're talking like one. And so this debate between Job and God and his representatives is not going to end until Job repents of his accusations against God. Moving to the third speech now, chapter 35. And Elihu answered and said, now Elihu's going to call out Job for accusing God of not caring. It's a pretty hard thing to say. God, you just don't care. People pray to you for help. People ask you to save them, and you just turn a blind eye to injustice. Job has said things like that. I'm going to point out, point out where in just a minute here. So in, in verses 1 to 8, he brings up, Job has said things like, why am I any better off for having not sinned? Because what happens to wicked people is what's happening to me. Like, maybe I should just live a life of wickedness and pleasure because at the end of the day, who cares? We're all going to get crushed by God because God's unjust. Job has accused God of that. And Elihu is saying, no, you can't take from God through sin. Like, your sin does nothing to rob God or do anything to him. But also, you can't put God in your debt through righteousness. You can't make God owe you by living a good life. So you're asking the wrong question, Job. And then he dives into this this claim that Job has raised about God being unjust. Look at verse 9. These are Job's words that he's quoting from Job chapter 24, verse 12. Because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They call for help because of the arm of the mighty. But God doesn't answer them is what Job claims in, in Job 24. Job has claimed that people are crying out, God help us. And God just goes like, nope, I don't care. And Elihu is saying, Job, you are not right to say that. You've charged God with not answering the prayers of the poor, of the oppressed, or of the afflicted. Read this with me here, verse 10, chapter 35, verse 10. None of those people, those people who are crying out, say, where is God my maker who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and who makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens? Saying, yes, people are crying out, but they're not really crying out in prayer to God to deliver them like you and I would understand. They're just cries of like, wow, this really sucks. I really hope someone would end this because I'm dissatisfied with the consequences of of my environment or my own actions. Verse 12, they cry out, this is the poor, this is the afflicted, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. How much less when you say that you do not see him, that the case is before him and you are waiting for him. Right? Job has said that, like I, I want to present my case to God and he just doesn't care. He's saying God does not listen to empty prayers. He doesn't listen to people who just cry out but are continuing to live in their sin even if they are poor, oppressed, and afflicted. Isaiah 59.1, this is said of God's own people. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it can't save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So what Elihu is arguing is that even when it looks like God is ignoring the pleas of people who are suffering, people who are being persecuted, people who are poor, afflicted, and they need help. Elihu is saying, if like, you don't see God show up and deliver them, it's very well could be that they're actually not calling out to God. They're just crying out like, oh, oh me, this is miserable. 
but they're not turning to the Lord and saying, Father, deliver me from this. Or they themselves might be walking in sin and contributing to the evil and suffering in this world, even though they're also experiencing it from others. And so Elihu's conclusion is, just because God hasn't crushed you for your arrogance, you think you can open your mouth in empty talk? He says this in verses 15 to 16 at the end of 35. And now because his anger does not punish, and he does not take, away, take much note of transgression, Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. A very similar uh, refrain from we heard at the end of 34. That Job is speaking things he doesn't know of. Job is traipsing into mystery and thinking he understands the mind of God, and he's accusing God of injustice, of not caring, of being silent. And Elihu's response here is, Job, you have uttered things of which you do not know, and you need to take a step back and repent of venturing to question God and his actions. So now we get to the fourth speech in which Elihu is going to defend that God is not powerless in chapter 36. And before he does that, though, he's going to return to this theme that God actually uses affliction, suffering, pain for good purposes, which is very hard to believe. Verse chapter 36, Elihu continued and said, Bear with me a little and I will show you, for I have yet something to say on God's behalf. I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my maker. I think that get my knowledge from afar isn't just like some distant land, but from heaven, actually. I'm bringing heavenly wisdom down to you, Job. For truly, my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. That's the exact opposite of what Job has said. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne, he sets them forever and they are exalted. Now here's where he's going to talk to the productive ends of suffering. The way God uses suffering like a scalpel or like chemotherapy in the lives of his people to actually save them from greater sin. Excuse me. Verse 6. He does not, oh, sorry, verse 7. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous. This is going to be the key subject here that he's talking about, the righteous. But with kings on the throne, he sets them forever and they are exalted. Verse 8. If they, that's the righteous, if they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. If they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. But if you do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. The godless in heart cherish anger. They do not cry for help when he binds them. Right? That's the opposite of the righteous. They just get angry when they're afflicted. But the righteous, they cry out for help. Verse 14, they die in youth and their life ends among the cult prostitutes. Then this is crazy. Verse 15, he delivers the afflicted by or through their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. So this is a general truth of the world that Job is saying. Sometimes this is what God is doing through the pain and suffering and afflictions of his people is he's actually delivering them through those things that that's causing them to stop and get their head up from the day to day and think about eternal things, take stock of their own heart, their own soul before God so that God can point out their sin or transgressions to them and that they'll repent and that they'll turn from that and live out the rest of their days in prosperity. One of the commentators I read 
use the analogy of taking a glass of water that has like muddy silt at the bottom. And when life is good, life is going on just fine, that's what our life is like. We look pretty good, clean water, right? But then when adversity comes, it stirs up that silt, that mud in the bottom, and all that stuff starts floating up, and you go, oh, that's gross. Like, I would never want to drink that. And that's the sin, that's the remaining depravity in our lives that needs to get removed, that needs to get cleaned out. And the tool God uses to stir up all that stuff from the bottom of our heart so that it will rise to the surface, we can become aware of it, repent of it, and be cleansed, is actually suffering. This is a truth told throughout the scriptures, actually. If you want to go to the next slide. Psalm 119, verses 67 to 71, say similar things. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is in feeling like fat, but I delight in your law. Verse 71 is, is incredible. It is good, or it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. That's the kind of response that Elihu ought to have or wants Job to come away from this experience with. Rather than accusing God and considering even abandoning his precepts and accusing God of wrong to stay steadfast and faithful and to look here and say, actually, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Proverbs also, if you want to go to the next slide, speaks to this. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father of the son in whom he delights. There's a sense that if God actually loves you, he won't let that silt sit in the bottom of your glass. He's going to get it out of there. It just is really hard to hear that sometimes he does that through suffering and affliction. Hebrews actually quotes this passage and explains it even further. If you want to go to the next slide, this is Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to start reading in verse 3 but we're going to focus in on 7 through 11. Here's the, the command from the writer. Consider him, that's Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Like, look at all the work Christ did and all the lengths he went to and all the suffering he went through to make an end of sin. Like, he's calling us to do that too. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Now he quotes Proverbs 3.11. We just read that. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's now verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. He's using an analogy here of discipline within our own families. 
There's a sense in which if you don't receive discipline from your parents to train you in the way that is right, they don't love you. Proverbs actually says this explicitly, that he who spares the rod hates his son. Imagine maybe like a, a king or something like that who has uh, the right, his rightful wife, the queen, and they have, a chil- they have children. The king is going to make sure that they're disciplined and trained and prepared to take on kingship when they come of age. But let's say he has an affair with the scullery maid, right? And he has an illegitimate child with her. That's kind of embarrassing to him. He's going to ignore that child. He's not going to have anything to do with that child's life. He's going to not have a care in the world about training that illegitimate child to prepare to take on kingship because that child has no future in his household. What the author here is saying, what Psalms and Proverbs are saying, what Job, or Elihu is saying in the book of Job is that like if God considers you part of his household and he has adopted you into his family, it would be unloving of him not to discipline you. Not to discipline you. And sometimes he does that through pain and suffering. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good when you're going through it. No discipline feels good at the time. But here's the promise. Later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Verse 10 is just, is just hard to wrap our minds around, especially if we consider some really severe trials. Right? When we lose a child or when our marriage is falling apart or when you get the cancer diagnosis or your family abandons you or when your work treats you unfairly, when your bathroom floods and you can't afford the repairs, when you're bouncing the two-month-old over and over and over again at 2 a.m. and he won't go to sleep. Whether it's big or small, don't ask why God is doing this to you. There are many answers to that, sometimes multiple answers to that. Ask what God is doing through it for your good. And it takes so much faith to believe that. To believe on one hand, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To believe that your salvation, your destiny, your sonship or daughterhood in Christ is secure because of his blood and his work on the cross, that he has taken the penalty of the law away on himself when he died on the cross, that God does not punish his children. To believe that, as well as Hebrews 12 at the same time, that he disciplines us for our good, just takes a ton of faith to believe in because on the outside, it sure doesn't feel like that. Sure doesn't feel like that to Job. Doesn't feel like God's disciplining me. Really feels like I've been stricken, afflicted, cast off, and abandoned. And maybe you felt that too in whatever kind of trials, severe mercies, afflictions you've gone through in this life. It probably did not feel like God was disciplining you. Here's a similar thought from John 15, one to two from Jesus. He says, I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that doesn't bear foot is thrown away. Sorry, doesn't bear fruit, is thrown away. He takes away. But every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Pruning is really painful. Pruning is painful. And so without God's puning, pruning or discipline, we actually wouldn't make it to the end. I want to reflect back on Job chapter 33. If you go to the next slide. So those are the two places we found this theme, 33 and 30, 36. At the very end of 33, Eli, who says, Behold, God does all these things, all this pruning work. He does all these things twice, three times with a man, 
to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. There's something to think about. There's a sense in which you or I would not make it to the end. We would not remain faithful without this pruning, without this discipline. That's very hard to hear, but that's what Elihu is saying, Psalms, Proverbs, Hebrews, Christ himself is saying, if you're in me, you're gonna get pruned. But there's the promise of the fruit that yields righteousness at the end of it. Hebrews 12 said, he disciplines us for our good so that, that's the answer to a why question. Why does he do that? So that we can share in his holiness. I don't understand it. I don't know why God has decided to govern the world this way. But God has clearly revealed to us this morning that if we want to share in his holiness, we have to be willing to submit to his discipline and to walk through that with faith and trust. We're going to end Elihu's speeches together now. If you want to turn your attention back to Job chapter 36. In verses 16 to 23, he's going to turn Elihu, his words directly back to Job. He's been speaking broadly to anyone who's maybe listening. Bildad, Zophar, Eliphaz, maybe some other people. Now he's going to speak directly to Job. This is chapter 36, verse 16. He also, God, has allured you out of distress. This is what God has been doing in Job's suffering. Into a broad place where there was no cramping. And what was set on your table was full of fatness. But you are full of the judgment of the wicked. He's been stirring up Job's glass. This has come up out of God, Job's heart. Beware lest wrath entice you into scoffing. He's calling him to repent now. And let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. Will your cry for help avail to keep you from distress or all the force of your strength? Can you save yourself? Do not long for the night when people vanish in their place. Take care. Do not turn to iniquity. For this you have chosen rather than affliction. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way? Or who can say, you have done wrong? Job, yes, you're suffering. Yes, you were just before the suffering happened. Your friends were all wrong. But Job, you too are wrong to accuse God of having wronged you, of being unjust, of being silent, of being uncaring, of being unable to stop what's going on. And you need to repent The rest of 36 and then into 37 is extolling the greatness of God. That's probably the the subtitle you have for the title, whole chapter. Job's, or sorry, Elihu's gonna paint a picture of how great and glorious God is, how awesome God is and his power over the universe. And God is gonna do the similar thing in in chapters 38 that we'll pick up on next week. So I'm not gonna go into a whole bunch of depth. But here's an incredible line from, actually goes into verse chapter 37 that I think is, is really powerful. So he's extolling God's greatness over thunder and lightning, the frost, snow. Where does that come from? And it gets to rain in chapter 37, verses 11 to 13. Talking about God, he loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. So God has all power to accomplish his will. Nothing's going to prevent him. No wicked person, no amount of affliction or suffering, no trial is going to keep God from accomplishing what he wants. Then here's a fascinating insight into just, just the example of rain, into what God is doing at any given time. 
Look at verse 13. So he sends on the face of the habitable world rain. Why? Whether for correction, like to punish somebody, to bring them back, or for his land, or for love. He causes it to happen. So like, why does even the rain fall? Sometimes it falls on the unjust to punish them, then, maybe in like a flood or something like that. Sometimes it falls just because God's like, hey, the land needs rain. Sometimes it falls to bless those who he loves with abundance and prosperity and growth. Sometimes it's probably all three wrapped up into one. And so even the use of God's use of the rain, Job, you can't question that. Stop asking why. You've been asking the wrong question. God doesn't need to justify himself to you. And this is very difficult. We've turned, you can turn to the next slide. We've looked at so far in Job several answers to this question of why. Why does God permit suffering and evil in this world? Well, we know from chapters one to two, sometimes it's to make his glory known. Like Job and his friends have no idea what happened in the throne room of God between God and Satan. That God is vindicating his name, that really Job loves God for the sake of God, not for all of his stuff. Sometimes that's why God uses suffering. <laughs> this, this week, we just asked, we were re- reviewing some things with uh, Elias. Just like, hey, Elias, buddy, what's, who's Job? Tell, what do you remember about Job? And Elias said, oh, he's that guy, and God took everything for him, but he still blessed God. That was really cool. Like, God, Elias glorified God because of the example of Job. Sometimes that's what God's doing in suffering. Sometimes he's doing, sending suffering or allowing suffering to persist, and he's not intervening so that millions of sinners across thousands of years will have time to repent. And we read that last week in 2 Peter 3, verses 8 to 10, that we think he's taking forever. Come back and right all these wrongs. And Peter says, no, God is not slow as some count slowness. He's delaying his return where he will set everything right so that millions of people will have a chance to trust of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's allowing you to remain in your suffering because if he were to come back and right that wrong and fix everything and raise that person from the dead, then the clock would stop and people wouldn't have a chance to repent. And third, we learned today that actually God sends suffering intentionally to discipline his children and save their lives from hell. We saw that in Job 33 and 36 and then again in Hebrews 12. But a lie who has taught us ultimately that we can't say to God that he's being silent, unjust, uncaring, or that he doesn't have the power to stop what's going on. God doesn't owe us an answer to the question of why. It's our duty to ask what God might be doing through our suffering. And so with Job, we ought to cover our mouths, fear the Lord, and trust his goodness and timing. I know I've said this before, say it one last time here, that all of this is actually really hard to understand or trust when you're going through something as hard or as harsh as Job is going through. Jesus taught a really hard teaching in John chapter 6 that no one can come to him unless the Father draws them. And a bunch of disciples, not the 12, but other people who were following him around were like, what, that's crazy, that's really hard to believe. And they left and went away. They stopped following him. And his disciples were like, Jesus, this is like really hard to understand. He's like, yeah, do you want to leave too? And famously, Peter remarks, no, like, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so even though this is a really hard teaching, where else are you going to go? Where else? Who else can deliver you 
can raise the dead and redeem your life from the pit. And so just as a sweet reminder of blessing in the midst of a book that has been really hard and serious, I just want to give you these pronouncements of blessings from the Beatitudes, from our shepherd king. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then here's one more from James. Chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Please pray with me. Father, we pray that we would be silent in the midst of our suffering and not accuse you of being unjust, uncaring, powerless, or some other evil thing. Lord, may we never question your justice, your judgment as the king of creation. Father, help us to trust in these pronouncements of blessing from Jesus. It's really hard to believe that you don't punish us, that we're no longer condemned, that you see us as your sons and daughters through faith in Christ, and at the same time that you would discipline us. But if we did not begrudge our earthly fathers who did that, may we not begrudge you who in greater wisdom and greater goodness disciplines us for our good so that we can share in your holiness. Father, help us to believe this. Only your spirit can give us the gift of faith to believe this this morning. So please do that. I ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.